you want to move your life forward, you need to get out of this mindset that we all have that will do it when we feel like it. If we wait until we feel like doing something, chances are we are not going to do that thing because we're never going to feel like doing it. Or when we kind of feel like doing it, we're going to wait until we feel more like doing it. In truth, the mental state that you aspire to inhabit, the mental state that you seek, is a result of taking action first. Mood follows action. Behavior first, perceptions, feelings, and thoughts follow. Welcome back to another episode of the Not Almost There podcast. And this is a special one because I have none other than Rich Roll in the house. And when I say in the house, I mean in real life. We were next to one another and talking and had a great conversation, which you're going to hear today. But not only did we do that, he spoke at Go this last weekend, which was a huge success. You were there. Thank you. If you weren't, you have to show up next year. It is. It was life-changing for many, and I know it could be for you as well. Getting back to the episode, I was extremely honored to be able to spend this time with Rich, to learn from him, to understand a little bit more about his story and to share that with you. And I'm telling you, I came away from the weekend with so many lessons from his wisdom and everything that he's been through in his life, from alcoholism to finding health in his 40s to running Ultraman and various other races that were just simply remarkable. Today's conversation is none other than that, and I know you're going to get a lot out of it. If you don't know Rich, you should. He has one of the top podcasts on the internet, over 150 million downloads, and he also is the author of Finding Ultra, Voice in Change, and a lot of other great books and material. I just know you're going to get a ton from the conversation, so I'm not going to summarize it this time. I'm going to just jump right into it. So please, as usual, get those shoes on and get outside. Do something while you listen to this conversation with the man himself, Rich Roll. Welcome, Rich, the Not Almost There podcast. Thanks for having me, man. <laughs> Excited to talk to you. It's incredible that you're here next to me. I've been watching you for many years, and, and it's also a little bit intimidating. I want to get into how you got into podcasting in the first place, but I think to tell that story, we have to go back a bit mm. and set it up for the listeners that don't know. I know many do, but the story of how you even got to that place where you wanted to have a podcast mm-hmm. and share your voice and do all the things that, that you've done. You'd be an athletic swimmer, you go to college for swimming, but I think the kind of the pinnacle point of change was when you were swimming, but then you had your first beer. Yeah, I had a uh, decade-plus journey through alcoholism that began um, around the time that I began college. I think it actually began uh, during recruiting trips to college where I was exposed to college parties for the first time. Um, 
and that was, you know, a journey that, that took me to some pretty dark places. Not immediately. I mean, I had a lot of fun with alcoholism. And I was a kid who was very awkward and socially insecure and lacked a lot of um, emotional tools, I think is fair to say. And alcohol helped unlock a lot of that for me. It made me a social creature. It taught me how to kind of be in the world and, and look people in the eye and talk to them and things like that. But ultimately, it ended up eroding everything aspirational in my life to the point where uh, I was really uh, a broken human being, like alienated from my friends and my family, unemployable, unable to show up when I said I would show up, unable to really tell the truth or, or hold myself accountable to anything. Um, it really broke me. And ultimately, I got sober uh, at 31, began the process of repairing my life, and spent the next 10 years trying to fix everything that I broke only to find that I had broken parts that still needed to be addressed in terms of you know, how I was living my life, what I'm here to express, and what I wanted to be doing with myself outside of the kind of social pressure to be um, a certain type of person. So when you were going through college... I believe you were pre-law and then you went to law school mm -hmm. directly after. And one of the things that I found pretty shocking, because I looked online at like when you got your law degree and then when you stopped practicing law, and there was only like an eight-year or so difference um, when you, in terms of like when you received your law degree and when you stopped. And my mind immediately goes to all of the effort that you had put into getting that JD and all of the work you had to do working at law mm. firms and then to just stop practicing law. So I know that was a bit intertwined around the time that you were trying to recover from alcoholism. But can you unpack that a bit? Sure. Like how, how do you do all that work and then, and then stop? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't quite like that. I mean, I graduated from law school in 94. I was a lawyer in San Francisco at a firm for a couple of years, moved down to Los Angeles and worked uh, at a firm in LA for a couple of years, got sober around that time, went back and worked for that firm a little bit, but realized pretty early into sobriety that I was really in the wrong place. Like I was trying to jam this square peg into a round hole like you can't believe, and I needed to do something different, but all I knew was the law. And to your point, I had invested so much time and energy in this career path that even if I felt like it was wrong for me, I was still gonna make it work for me somehow. So you're correct in that you know, I ended up getting out of the kind of big law firm version of what it meant to be a lawyer. I think I left in 99. So I put in six, almost six years of the corporate law firm lifestyle, uh, but I didn't stop being a lawyer. I ended up spending a number of years after that, in fact, I didn't officially pull the plug on, on being a lawyer until my book was published in 2012. So I had a couple incarnations of practicing law as a solo practitioner. I had a small law firm with two friends at one point that went on for a while. Then I had um, a different guy who was my partner and I was doing entertainment transactional law, which was different than what I was doing before, which was litigation. So I was trying to find a way to make law work for me and sort of helping filmmakers um, finance their projects, 
I did talent deals. I was production counsel on a bunch of independent movies. And that seemed like a fun, cool way to participate in the creation of something creative, artistic, while using my skills as a lawyer at the same time. And I, and I enjoyed aspects of that, but most of my clients were starving artists, so it wasn't paying the bills very well. Like, you know, as a business plan, uh, it wasn't the greatest, but I was able to figure out a way to kind of continue being a lawyer um, in a way that was a little bit easier for me to digest than what I was doing before. But ultimately, it was, none of it was for me. Yeah, that makes sense. And maybe what I looked at was your solo practice mm -hmm. or sometime period right. that, that was short, but I know you put a lot of effort into that. When kind of going back to the alcohol issue that you had, I know many folks drink for pleasure and they, they drink for leisure and, and there's, I think, a fine line between like partying and having a six-pack of beer with your friends and drinking every night to actually having it impede your life. And I was wondering, like, what were the signals that you saw, aside from getting in trouble with the law and some real obvious ones, that you were, you were struggling with this and this was becoming an issue in your life? Yeah, I mean, those signals were apparent very early on. I refused to acknowledge them, but they were there, right? So there is a big difference between, you know, a real alcoholic and then somebody who maybe, you know, has a little bit of an issue with drinking but can kind of maintain their lifestyle and the person who can have a couple beers with their friends and it ain't no big deal. Like, I'm talking about real alcoholism, which is what I suffer from. My relationship from, with alcohol from the very beginning was problematic. I have an allergy to that substance, and it speaks to something broken in my soul that creates um, a habitual uh, relationship with it that creates a situation where you feel like you can't live without it. And... From day one, I was the kid who stayed too late at the party, who uh, did the stupid thing and, and said the incorrect thing, who got into trouble, who was never ready to call it a night, you know, always was looking for the after party or what was going to follow until there was no one left to do it with and I was all alone doing it by myself. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of people can relate to that, though, and... and how do you know though when you need help is it was what was the defining moment when you sought help i mean things had to get really bleak before i actually would raise my hand and and seek help i mean i had to get i got two duis in a two-month period and i blew point uh, point 2.34 so i blew like crazy numbers both times and was looking at jail time i was looking at you know a, my license getting suspended for a very long time. Like it took that for me to even acknowledge that maybe I might have a problem. <laughs> uh, and I think uh, it's important for people that are listening to this to understand that, that alcoholism is a self-diagnosed disease. I can't explain to you what constitutes alcoholism and what doesn't, but I, would, I think, I, I feel strongly that if you if you think you have a problem, like you probably do, because somebody who has a non-problematic relationship with alcohol or another substance doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about whether they have a problem because they know that they don't, right? And I think addiction is a spectrum. We tend to think of addiction as very binary, like the person who 
can't pull the needle out of their arm or the drunk that's lying in the gutter. But in truth, I think it's something that on some level we all suffer from, whether you're a full-blown alcoholic like myself or perhaps you can't put your phone down or you keep finding yourself in unhealthy relationships or you know, you gamble too much in Vegas or you buy too much shit online, whatever it is. We all have compulsivities and behavior patterns that don't serve us. And I think those are, if not full-blown addictions, like they're related to addiction. So if you're struggling to understand what addiction is, think about things that you continually, repeatedly do that are moving your life in the wrong direction and yet you continue to do them. And perhaps you can develop a little bit more empathy for somebody who deals with a real serious addiction. That being said, if you think your relationship with alcohol is somewhat problematic, there's a good chance that might be true. And that doesn't mean that you're a full-blown alcoholic either. I think that, you know, there's a lot of people who maybe drink a little bit too much, and when you get to a certain age, you just can't shake it off the next day, and it denigrates the quality of your life to some degree. And there's benefits in abstinence. I had a guest on my podcast a couple years ago called Andy Ramage. Andy Ramage, who was a, a commodities trader in London, had been a professional soccer player, and just got into the lifestyle where you got up you got to kind of party with your clients and do the deal and was never an alcoholic, but really got stuck in that cycle until he was feeling like shit all the time and just didn't have an, an enthusiastic relationship with life and decided to quit drinking, which was not smiled upon in his business and made it very difficult, but ultimately gave him this new lease on life. And he started this thing called One Year No Beer that became kind of like a phenomenon across Britain, and I'm sure a lot of people in America have done it as well. And the premise is that, that you know, abstinence can be cool and fun and amazing, and you don't have to be an alcoholic, or you don't have to be ashamed of your relationship with alcohol to like take a break and try something different. Yeah, definitely, that makes sense. And I've, I've heard of that and uh, had subscribed to it as well. And, and I, I agree, like you and I were talking off air about non-alcoholic beer and I, you know, I think that's that's really becoming popular because mm -hmm. people do want alternatives and they're seeing what alcohol does to your, your system. And I know for myself, I could check my resting heart rate before and after a night of consumption. It's yeah. significant, especially with the whoop strap. And yeah, the sleep deregulation alone is so dramatic. If you wear a whoop or you got an aura ring and you just look at your sleep stats after you've been drinking a little bit, it's shocking. Yeah. You know what, you know what, too, that it, it the, you know how the Whoop asks you questions in the morning, like a little survey? Uh-huh. And it's like, have you had any alcohol? And there's this feeling of guilt when I, when I press yes. That's another, like, really interesting thing, just by someone asking you in the morning. Mm -hmm. And it feels so great when you could create a streak of saying no. Right. It's interesting that you feel that, though. I don't know if they intended you to feel guilty about that, because they also say, did you fly in a plane? But yeah. you wouldn't feel guilty if your sleep was messed up because you were on an airplane. Well, I think you could curate your questions that it asked you uh, in the morning. Oh, yeah, that's true. I remember that when we set it up. So maybe the ones that curated for myself mm -hmm. were ones that, like, it's like, are you bloated? Well, I could look back and say, well, why did I eat that last night? So, right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating, but I've... I've written about that a, a bit and just watched that over time, like the, your blood pressure and, and everything mm -hmm. that happens with your, you know, 
biochemistry when you have alcohol and then you don't. Sure. So you're, uh, I know you, you sought treatment and in your book, I remember you saying that one of the defining moments was you going on a beach and just praying. Um, mm. And at that point in your life, you weren't spiritual. What were you, do you remember back then? Like, what were you praying for? Well, what was, what was happening was I was being introduced to the, the steps, the 12 steps, the mysterious 12 steps that exist in the secret society. In the big book. <laughs> yeah, in the big book. Exactly. Um, I was still in treatment at the time, and my treatment center was in rural Oregon. And I've been going through the steps as a, as a part of, of my treatment protocol. And part of that is step four, which is performing an inventory. And, and you know, personally, I should say more broadly that I think these 12 steps, regardless of it, whether you have an addiction problem or not, are just incredibly powerful, helpful tools for um, identifying your blind spots, helping you understand uh, your errant behaviors and kind of why you do the things that you do. Um, and in my case has been nothing short of revelatory. But in the process of doing this thing called an inventory, which is step four, you kind of write out all of your resentments, you do a sexual inventory. And what happens in the process of doing that is patterns emerge and you realize like, oh my God, like I resent everybody for this one thing. Or every time I'm in a relationship, I do this. And and it's always the money thing that triggers my resentment towards this person. And you see all the things that make you afraid and you realize that fear underlies so many of those errant behavior patterns. And it's really kind of a remarkable thing. But once you complete that, you do uh, a step five where you're like, you, um, you are letting go of it, right? Like you have to like, make peace with this and ask for help to like move forward essentially. And to do that, I wanted to create a rich, like some ritual or ceremony around that. So I went to this beach on the coast of Oregon where I like burned my, you know, I burned all of this and, and kind of just asked for help and said, I'm turning it over, you know, I'm turning it over to a power greater than myself to help me with. And that was a very powerful moment that created a sense of a shift in my life that I think I'm still living in the repercussions of today. And from that point, was it you just knew that that was the point? Or did I know one of the things that the 12 steps and we're going to get into how to achieve things and that's incrementality. It's taking one day at a time, one moment at a time. But at that point, did you know like I'm not going back after you burnt those things. Well, there was a, you know, the symbolic nature of burning it kind of, kind of cements it, you know, neurologically, like, okay, that was my past and now this is my future. And I wouldn't say like, oh no, I'm never doing that again. Like I have too much life experience and I fucked up too many things to yeah. think like, okay, that's never happening again because I knew myself too well and I couldn't trust my own default settings. So it wasn't that as much as it was a recognition that, that um, I was discovering a new way. And, and the most powerful thing about it was that that new way 
had nothing to do with my self-will. And what I mean by that is prior to that experience, I would tell you that everything good that I had achieved in my life, whether it was getting into Stanford or making my way to the to, to getting a world ranking in swimming or or you know, getting good grades or getting into law school or, or getting this job or that job, any, any of that stuff was all a function of my self-will, my ability to suffer, my ability to work hard, my, my you know, desire to get the thing. It was all me, 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 me. I'm the one who made it happen. What I was coming to realize and recognize is that my self-will is not only more limited than I realized, it's also an opposing force. It's also a bit of an enemy that has led me astray, that sense that I am in control. Because when I applied my self-will to this alcohol problem, I couldn't solve it. And that was the most mystifying thing of all. Like every other problem in my life, if I just focus on fixing it, I can figure it out. But the more I tried to do that with my alcoholism, the worse it got. And the epiphany that I had was that the solution and the healing would only come when I let go of all of that and allowed other people to help me. And when I recognized that there was a power outside of myself, a power greater than myself, that if invited in, could be part and parcel of that healing process. So in some sense, I think it's fair to call it a spiritual awakening. Um, And it was something palpable that... um, really changed how I, how I see myself in the world and how I navigate the world. Like even today, before we did the keynote, my simple prayer that I say to myself before I give any kind of talks, podcasts, keynote, is I just, you know, I just ask for help and I just say, just let me be a vessel. Like, let me be of service. It's not about my ego. This is not, I'm not here to like, prove that I know anything. I'm not here to, to show you what I'm capable of. I'm here to merely be a vessel, hopefully a helpful one to other people. And the more I'm able to kind of get in that space and get out of the way, as opposed to be in this energy of forcing or compelling, um, the better things seem to go. Yeah, no, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I know from that point, from the sobriety, it's been 23 years. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Imperfect though. And I had a, you know, I had a, at 13 years of sobriety, I had a relapse, a one day relapse. Yeah. Yeah. So So what happened there? I can't can't pass. Yeah. I mean, it's a longer, it's a longer story. I mean, and I I did a whole episode on my podcast about it. It, it Basically, I had been training for Ultraman 2011 2009 was the year that like I crashed and I wanted to go back because I felt like I still had a better performance in me and I spent you know the year just training like you cannot I was like on a razor's edge I was so fit it was insane and I was like I'm gonna win this race what I had done though is made endurance sports my higher power I never questioned whether or not I was an alcoholic and I never stopped going to a meetings or being connected to my community, but it stopped being my number one priority and it kind of fell down the chain of things that were important to me. And I rationalized it as temporary given that I needed to focus on my training for this race. Um, But 
what I learned is that when you take your foot off the gas and you're not diligent, and I'm just talking about me, this is in my case, um, if I'm not diligent about my recovery and my step work and staying on top of keeping that you know, addiction beast at bay, it's going to find a way to express itself. And maybe that happens initially through just some weird character defects, but eventually the train that leads to the relapse has already pulled out of the station and you're creating momentum around that event eventually happening. And so while I was kind of checked out from my recovery and making um, endurance sports my priority, I go to Hawaii, I do this race, and I DNF. I start coughing up blood during the first day and the early part of the second day. And I just didn't have, something was wrong with me and I had to pull out of the race. And it was devastating to me because I'd literally put an entire year of work into making this happen and it didn't go my way. And I didn't realize the emotional toll that that was playing on me until a couple days later when I was at the beach with my family and they were down the way and I found myself in front of a, a, a beachside bar in front of a resort and without even a thought, it's just like, I'll have a beer. And there was a beer in front of me and I just, I just drank it. And then I said another one. And within 10 minutes, I had four or five beers in me. And then my youngest daughter, not my youngest, my second youngest daughter walks up. She's like, dad, what are you doing? She knew immediately, even though she was like eight or something at the time, she knew something was wrong. And Julie knew, she was like, what, what, what is going on? And I was at an AA meeting that night. So on some level, it was the world's lamest relapse. I had like five beers and then I was at an AA meeting. Um, but what I learned from that experience is just how cunning, baffling, and powerful alcoholism is in that after thousands and thousands of hours invested in my recovery and a billion AA meetings and however many conversations and treatment and all the wreckage and all of that, that in that moment that I would choose to have a beer, it's so baffling and makes no logical sense. And I think that's why people have a hard time wrapping their heads around addiction because they can't understand why somebody would make that choice right. in that moment. Right. And that is the point. It is cunning, baffling, and powerful. It doesn't make sense that I would make that choice and toss out everything and risk my, everything that I had built for a momentary head buzz. But the miracle of sobriety People say like, like they get freaked out when somebody relapses and goes out and drinks and they, they lose sight of the truth, which is that it's actually a miracle that anybody stays sober for even a day at all, right? That's the way this whole thing works. So what it did was it right-sized my ego because I think at 13 years and taking my pedal off my recovery, I started to think like, I got this covered, yeah. it's cool. Like, I don't have to go, I'm not gonna drink. Like, I don't need to go to an AA meeting. And when I show up at a meeting, I kind of, you know, peacock about like, I've been around, like I got the yeah. answers. You wanna know what's up? You come talk to me. And that's really fucking dangerous. And I figured out just how dangerous. So I got my ass kicked, I got right-sized, put my ego where it needed to be, and it completely reframed my relationship with sobriety, so I approach it now with such a greater degree of respect and humility than I would have otherwise. That's a great story. Mm. Thanks, for, thanks for sharing that. The, to fast forward a bit, I know 
you're, you became sober, but that really didn't transform necessarily your health and wellness. Um, and I think there is, there is a uh, misconception sometimes if you just stop drinking all of a sudden you'll become healthy, but there's a huge mm. other component to that and that is diet and that's, yeah. that's exercise. I know there was a moment when you were on the stairs and you were walking up the stairs and you had an issue and that really was a catalyst for you to think about change from what I understand about you. Mm-hmm. Can you take us to that point in time? <clears throat> sure. So got sober at 31, got out of treatment, very intent on repairing all the wreckage that I'd created as a result of my drinking and basically invested most of my energy outside of my attention to recovery into my career, such that by the time I was 40 or on the precipice of turning 40, I had become successful. Like I had become a productive member of society. I was on the partnership track to being, you know, everything everything that I ever had convinced myself that I thought that I wanted in the traditional rubric of what we think about when we think about being successful, the fancy car, the nice house, building a family, met my wife, uh, all the stuff, right? But over the course of that nine year period, first nine years of my sobriety, I really overlooked my health and well-being. You know, I only had the bandwidth to do what I was doing at the time and kind of coasted on fitness, nutrition and the like um, ended up transferring a lot of that addict energy onto my relationship with food. I remember being in AA meetings in early sobriety and people talking about um, emotional eating. And I was like, what is that? Like, I don't under, what do you even mean? Like, I don't understand. I just thought that was ridiculous. The idea that you would eat a certain food to mute a certain emotion. And it wasn't until years later that I realized that I had been doing that all along, unconsciously. Whenever I felt some level of low-grade discomfort, knowing I can't drink, I'm reaching for a cheeseburger or a bowl of ice cream or, you know, you name it, French fries, whatever it is, to just dull that sensation and take me out of experiencing the moment. Food is very powerful in that regard, and I was certainly doing that workaholism, food addiction, fast forward to that staircase, walking up a f- simple flight of stairs to my bedroom after a long day of work and, and having to pause, having to pause, like out of breath, tightness in my chest, sweat on my brow, buckled over slightly and thinking, I'm 39 years old, like I have to take a break up a simple flight of stairs. I used to swim the 200 butterfly as well as anybody. And now I can't even do this. Like, what is happening? How much weight were you then? I was like 215 probably, which for me, like my fighting weight's 165. So I I was like 50 pounds over my ideal weight. Uh, But I was never, I wasn't like an obese, you know, I wasn't like super obese or anything like that. I was just like kind of like putting on the heft, riding the elevator, being a lawyer, that kind of thing. Um, but that, that, that kind of like sluggish, I'm 40 and I just kind of wake up and don't feel all that great. That kind of guy, that was who I was. And it scared me, you know, that moment, um, heart disease runs in my family. My grandfather had been captain of the university of Michigan swim team in the late 1920s, 
He was an Olympic hopeful. He held an American record uh, and died of a heart attack at age 54, long before I was born and I was never able to meet him. And yet I'm named after him. And I have these old photos of him where it's like you can see the resemblance. There's a weird kind of like connection, spiritual connection that I have to him as well. But the fact that he died at 50, I'm 54 right now, so I think about my mortality quite a bit. The fact that he died of heart disease at that age. And it scared me on the staircase, and I realized that I needed to make some pretty drastic changes to how I was living. And my anchor was reflecting back upon the day that I decided to go to a treatment and get sober, and a recognition of how powerful these moments are when they arise to grab them, because they contain a lot of potential energy. But if you allow them to pass or you don't give them the attention they deserve, they dissipate quickly. And I was able to realize, like, I need to do this now because if I wait until tomorrow, I'll probably feel different. And that change needs to be immediate. It needs to be drastic. It needs to, you know, put the hurt to me a little bit, and I need to do it immediately. Otherwise, like, I'm just going to keep doing the shit that I'm doing. And really, that's what I did. I started implementing some lifestyle changes pretty immediately. I held myself to a pretty strict standard. I, I kind of created my own rehab for lifestyle at home. I really leveraged that experience of what it was like to be in treatment to try to recreate that for some of the habits that I knew in my heart of hearts were, were going to kill me if I didn't get on top of them. What was the first step that you did? The first thing I did was a, was a juice cleanse for a week. Not because I thought I've got all these toxins that, need, that, that I need to remove. Yeah. Honestly, it was really... It was a function of, of thinking, that sounds hard. Like, that sounds, that sounds hard and painful, and that's what I need right now. Like, I want, to, I, want to in, I want to endure an experience of what it's like to show up at a rehab and have to detox your body, like off heroin or off alcohol, whatever it is. Like, and a juice cleanse is the best way to do that. Like, I'd never gone a single day without eating solid food. Like, I knew it was going to be difficult, and it was. In the first couple of days of that, I was on the couch sweating, feeling like I was getting off drugs. It was exactly the same feeling. Lethargy, brain fog, no energy, all that stuff. But the power of that experience was that the clouds began to part, and by the time it was concluded, seven days later, I felt amazing. Like, amazing in a way that I hadn't felt since I was in probably my early 20s. And it dawned on me that feeling good was possible. That was the first thing. The second thing was understanding how resilient the, the human body is. Like I'd, I'd realized on some level, like bouncing back from addiction, like the body can really, is incredibly adaptable. And here I was a week into this hard thing, feeling in a way that I didn't think was possible. Mm-hmm. So the resiliency of the human body. And it also encouraged me to then go on this exploration of trying to find a way of eating that would allow me to feel like that all the time. So it was, it was profound in that regard. But then after that, you, you looked into more of a plant-based diet, but not solely vegan at that time. And you didn't see a lot of drastic results like you were hoping for. What went wrong there? I mean, yeah, I was like, oh, maybe I'll try this diet. Maybe I'll try that diet. I'll try a, yeah. a vegetarian diet. And then I was like, well, if I'm vegetarian, I can still go to Pizza Hut, just don't put the pepperoni on there. Like, I played so many tricks on my mind to convince myself that I was being healthier than I was before. 
And that's similar to the denial of, you know, any addict, right? And I had to kind of play that out for myself. Um, ultimately, I found my way to a plant-based diet, um, not because it sounded, in, you know, like appealing. It didn't. It was like the last thing on my checklist to try. But, um, but I had known some people who had done it. Was your wife plant-based then? No. I mean, my wife has always been healthier than me. Like, she was, you know, what you would call, like, a clean eater. Like, she would eat yeah. fish once in a while. But, you know, ultimately, like, she was an example of somebody who knew how to take care of themselves. <laughs> I was not, right? Like, you know, if you were to open up our, our yeah. fridge at the time, it's like she's got kale and kombucha and, you know, turmeric and I've got, you know, uh, marshmallows and, you know, ice cream and, and potato chips and, yeah, yeah hamburger <laughs> pie or whatever. And it's like, oh, well, that's nice that you're like that, yeah. but, like, this is what I need, you know. Um, but this plant-based diet thing, you know, I knew my, my, this friend of mine, Rip Esselstyn, who had been an all-American swimmer at Texas and a professional Ironman, had tried it. We were connected on Facebook. He was about to come out with this book called The Engine 2 Diet. It's a longer yeah, he's story. Yeah, the fireman, right? Yeah, the fireman, yeah. right? And we're the same age. We swam against each other. Like, I, I didn't really know him, but we knew of each other. We were connected on Facebook. And I came across his posts about this book coming out and the fact that he was plant-based. And I was like, wait, whoa, like, tell me about that. And, you know, he was my first kind of like mentor or source of inspiration. And he gave me the confidence to give it a try. And honestly, like, I didn't want it to work because it just sounded like a life sentence to misery, quite frankly. But within seven days of eating nothing but plants, nothing with a mother, nothing with a face, whole food, plant-based, no, no like processed foods, that was the one thing that I tried of all the other stuff that I tried that very quickly gave me that energy vitality boost that I experienced on that last day of the juice cleanse. And I realized that there was something going on here. And I've just been doing it ever since and learning how to do it better and educating myself and it, you know, it's been 15 years, almost 15 years, um, and it's worked really well for me. And have you ever ate meat over that 15 years? I mean, there's been there's been instances where I'm at a restaurant, and I order like the, and then they bring the wrong thing, and I take a bite of it, and it's wrong or, right, or whatever. Yeah, but, I mean, there's been plenty of that kind of stuff. Um, I haven't like consciously, you know, gone to uh, McDonald's and had fish a fish or anything. yeah or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Um, and, you know, like, also, uh, you know, whole food plant-based means no, you really are avoiding a lot of processed foods. But the struggle now is that now they've figured out all these processed vegan alternative foods mm -hmm. that actually taste good. They used to be terrible, but now there's a bunch of them that are actually pretty good. So the denial as the alcoholic, right? Like, I'll be like, well, I can eat this coconut ice cream or I can eat these, the beyond you know, the, all the beyond stuff and it tastes good and, and be like, but I'm vegan and it's healthy and it's good. <laughs> it's like, you can easily delude yourself. So, you know, I definitely plead guilty to doing that kind of thing from time to time, uh, but haven't gone back to eating sirloins or anything like that. So I remember you saying, I don't remember where I heard this, but you were talking about dairy and what an impact that made. Uh -huh. uh, can you expand on that at all? Like, Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I actually giving up meat wasn't that hard. It wasn't until after I gave it up that I realized like I'd been eating it my whole life and never really thought about it. And, and I was like, 
does chicken even taste good? Like I just been eating it my whole life. And then it was no problem at all to stop eating it. And I realized I didn't miss it at all. Um, I mean, I love cheeseburgers. So that was a little bit harder, but dairy, oh, dairy was tough, man. Cheese is on everything. And that there's something about cheese that makes it really addictive. It's so hard to quit it. And this is a common thing because I talk about this a lot with people. They're like, well, I could do that, but I could never give up cheese. There's something about the case of morphins in cheese that activate these neuroreceptors in our brain and create a sort of addictive relationship with them. So it was really hard for me to kick it. I definitely had withdrawals for like two weeks. Um, but it also made the biggest impact in how I felt. Like when I stopped eating meat, I didn't really feel that much different. But when I, when I really kicked dairy, suddenly I felt way better. Like my inflammation in my body went down. I was able to recover much more quickly from my training sessions. I just felt lighter and, and more energized. And you know how you wake up some days and like your eyes are puffy and you just feel like, ugh, you know, like, you know, like, like, I realized that in my case, at least, like dairy was a big piece of that. And when I got rid of it, like it's just, you know, I've just felt better. That's fascinating. Mm. So would you recommend if someone's looking at to improve their diet, that's one of the first things they should try and eliminate? I recommend that everybody should experiment. You know, I'm very reluctant to sit behind a microphone and pontificate on from a judgmental perspective about how people should live their lives. The plant-based lifestyle for me has, has had a revolutionary impact on, on every aspect of how I live, but it's not for me to tell you what choice you should make for yourself. That's on you, right? I'm happy to share my experience, but one of the things you learn in sobriety is you don't give advice, you share your experience. This is my right. experience. So all I can tell you or the listeners is, to take your health and your nutrition seriously and to try different things. Try a plant-based diet for 30 days, see how it goes. I'd be willing to bet after 30 days, you're gonna feel better. But if you don't, I'll refund you that and you can go back to eating McDonald's or whatever it is. Try a paleo diet, try, try whatever, you know. But I will say, get off the processed foods, you know. I really don't think dairy is a health food. Might be better off without it, check it out. Do your own research on yourself. Pay attention to how you feel. Just be more conscious with your daily choices. And that applies not just to food, but where you're spending your money. And most importantly, how are you spending your time? Time is our most valuable resource and we're the least protective of it. So maybe begin there. Do you think the plant-based diet is hard for people to wrap their minds around? On one end, it's simple right? It's mm -hmm. fruits and vegetables. But on another end, it's completely different than what folks are used to in terms of making meals. And I know you have the, the plant power meal planner mm -hmm. that you created to make that easier for folks. But have you found that to be a challenge? And what are, what are some tips that someone could go into a grocery store and actually make a meal out of this produce? Right. <laughs> Well, actually, it opens up an entire world of possibilities because when you think about it, the look, well, first, let me say this. When I first started it, yes, I agreed. I was like, what am I going to do? Crawl around in my yard and chew grass? It's <laughs> yeah. like, this sounds terrible. Like, what's left to eat? But what you realize is you've actually been only eating a few things most of the time. Pizza, 
burgers, fries. What, you know, it's like our diets are already incredibly limited. When you go plant-based, you realize, first of all, most of the things that we eat are plant-based anyway. And now it just opens up this world of possibility of creativity, of expansiveness to explore different tastes, different traditions of cuisine. There's this idea that it's going to be really time-consuming and that you've got to do all this meal prep and you've got to be very conscious about what, making sure that you're meeting your protein needs. And I have found all of this to be utter nonsense. Essentially, it's pauper food. It's rice. It's beans. It's, grain, it's whole grains. It's, it's you know, dark leafy vegetables. It's tons of fruits. It's nuts and seeds. It's very, very basic. You, can go to, you asked me what I had for dinner last night. I go to Chipotle. I had a burrito with rice and beans and, you know, guacamole and, and lettuce. And like, I'm happy. That's good. That's plant-based. I'm not missing out on anything. Travel all over the world. It's never been a problem. So I think it's about setting aside some idea of what you think it's going to be and treating it like a fun adventure as opposed to some kind of restrictive, burdensome life sentence. Um, and there's a lot of misconceptions out there, like the idea that you could be an athlete on a plant-based diet. When I started, not very many people were doing it. And I've done things with my body that most people can't even wrap their heads around. I've never had a problem meeting my protein needs or having enough energy to complete a workout or putting on lean muscle mass and progressing week in, week out to be stronger, fitter, faster, and more enduring. I just haven't had that experience. And I promised myself when I began this not to be overly dogmatic and that if it stopped working, that I wasn't gonna get caught up in some kind of ideology or tribalism that would you know, prevent me from making the health choice that would be appropriate for me. But you know, it's, just, it's just worked well for me. And the proof's in the pudding because you shed all that weight fairly quickly. Yeah, I said, I mean, that weight came off pretty quick and I had all this energy that I didn't used to have and I translated that into getting out there and getting fit. And the big thing is, look, it's not, I don't want to overstate the case. It's not like, oh, I went plant-based and that made me a better athlete. I think that that's reductive and not true. I think that when done right, the benefit of a plant-based lifestyle is you're getting off all these shitty foods that are terrible for you. You're focusing on foods that are very nutrient dense and also basically, you know, high in antioxidants and anti-inflammatory. So when you're, a, when you're an athlete, as you know, Joe, the holy grail is recovery. The faster you can recover, the harder you can train, the longer you can go. And protracted over time, that's going to translate into huge gains, right? If you can shrink that recovery time and wake up the next day feeling good rather than beat up, that means that you can you know, have more consistency in the rigor of your training. And that's what I experienced. So that's, I think, a big reason why I was able to go from you know, basically sedentary to doing these ultra races. And you know, it still took two and a half years of training to get there, but it probably should have taken more like four or five years if I was eating in another way. And that led to, well, prior to the ultra race, you had a run. And when you, when you talked about this run in your book, it was, mm-hmm. it was hard to fathom that you're just out running and then all of a sudden you look at your watch, your Garmin, you're like 24 miles. Like, well, it wasn't quite, I mean, yeah. It wasn't like, <laughs> oh, I didn't, re- I mean, I knew I was having kind of a flow state experience. Yeah, I was like, I feel 
unbelievable. Like, I'm just going to keep going. Like, how long can I feel this good? Like, I feel like I could just run forever and time just disappeared. And so I just went with it. But it was also a hot day in the desert and I didn't bring any water with me and I was running, you know, in the middle of nowhere. So I ended up turning around at like 12 miles um, and ended up running 24 miles, which, you know, at the time I hadn't run more than five or six miles at most. So it was a, it was a definitely a powerful, like kind of watershed moment of realizing that a, I guess this plant-based diet is working for me because I just did something I didn't think that I could do. B, how crazy resilient is the human body? Cause I've abused it for so long with drugs and alcohol and terrible lifestyle habits. And now it's performing at a level I didn't, I never thought I would be able to realize. Um, and, and thirdly, like, okay, so what am I going to do with this? Like, where can I take this? What does this mean? What does this mean in the greater context of my life? It was cool that it happened, but um, I spent a lot of time reflecting upon that. And, and that's really kind of what catalyzed this, this, you know, this exploration of ultra endurance, not as a means of, of, you know, calling myself a competitive athlete, but really as a spiritual exploration to learn more about what makes me tick and what I'm here to do. Was it endurance like the perfect sport for you because of the extreme nature of it? Like you seem, you seem like you're into extremes. If that's binging eating yeah. when you were drinking alcohol, now it's binging miles and running. 100%. If you go to any ultra race, <laughs> you've never seen more tattoos and, and more accumulated sobriety in your life. Like it's, a mag, it's like a magnet. You know, like those... What are those flickering lights that attract bugs? You know, oh, yeah, like at yeah. night, it's like, it's like that for addicts, right? Or recovering addicts. Because there's something about addiction that's very akin to spiritual seeking. Addicts are trying to solve a problem. They have a, they have a hole in their soul. They have something that can't be sated. And they're in search of finding comfort, of finding answers for that. What is... Um, you know, what is causing me this level of like discontent and what is the solution? What is the, what is the greater, you know, consciousness that will solve this for me? And I think ultra endurance is similar in that regard, right? Like you're, you're going to go out there and it's, it's, it doesn't matter how many people are competing. The race is between you and you. Like you're not, you're not racing against anybody else in any of these races. It's an inner war where you're compelled to confront yourself and all the ugliness inside of you. And it's a wrestling match with the soul that confronts you with who you truly are, the person that you, you, know, you can't hide from. And it forces you to engage with yourself in a really profound way. And that's been my experience. And that's really the beauty of it. I don't know of any other sport that does that because when you're that exhausted, you're stripped away of all your costuming and all your artifice. And it reveals the inner person within. And in my case, over time, it's helped provide me with insights about what makes me tick and helped guide me towards you know, a path of, of, of greater fulfillment and, and, and purpose and service. So it is, so sorry to interrupt you, but really your question was, isn't this just alcoholism in another form, right? And, and, and I, my answer to that, I don't want to like duck the question because I think, yes, like had I not been 
this person who's, who's attracted to extremes, I might not have gone into that arena. And I think it's important to acknowledge because they oh, you just traded one addiction for another. Like there's truth to that, yes. You know, and my job now is to really be conscious of when, like I've learned to really just embrace, rather than shame myself, embrace the fact that I'm attracted to these extremes. And there's a lot of growth opportunity in exploring that as long as you calibrate it and balance it against the other things in your life that are important. And that's kind of like the inner monologue that I have with myself. Yeah, I think more the context of the question, you answered it, but what I was going to add is that if you do have an issue with a substance or whatever it is, binge eating, you can replace that with something that is much more positive. Yes and no. But I think, yes, there, yes that's true. But you're then, if you're doing that, you're still distracting yourself right? The substance or the behavior is not the problem. It's the symptom of the problem. There's something beneath that that's compelling you to make that choice. And you can live the rest of your life distracting yourself from that thing. But addiction provides you with the opportunity to get honest with yourself and to really deconstruct what it is that's compelling you to make that decision. And if you can heal that wound, then you can level up in your life and yeah. all kinds of things become possible and available to you. But if you just say, well, I'm going to quit drinking and I'm going to start running, you're still putting blinders on. That's the point I wanted to make. Right. Yeah. So surface the issue first, make it a, prior, a priority. Like you said, like that when you had the relapse, it fell down your priority list. So make that your continuous number one priority. But then if you need to do something to find your deep spiritual side or like or a deeper meaning of your why um challenging yourself in that way seems like a more productive thing than not sure well it's better than just like getting blotto right yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean um, but i think you have to be careful like anything can be an addiction endurance sports can be an addiction and if you lose yourself in that and start thinking that like your average watts on the bike and your you know run volume is more important than your relationship with your sure. partner or your kids your life is going to dovetail into a disaster pretty quickly so it's about having you know conscious awareness of why you're making the decisions that you're making being aware of the triggers and when you're and, and catching yourself when you're making mistakes, because this is not about perfection, just being honest with yourself so that you can heal whatever wounds exist within you. And I remember when I got sober, it was like all this talk about healing. Like, do I need to be healed? Like, what's broken? Like, what is this healing? So that we, we're all walking around with some form of trauma or behavior patterns that don't serve us, or we're looping negative thoughts. And most of us live out our lives you know, in that situation because the problems never become acute enough for us to address. If you're a heroin addict, you know, you're, it's a ticking clock. Like eventually you're going to have to deal with this and you're going to die or you're going to get sober, right? Um, and on some level, that's a gift because ultimately you're going to have to confront this. But most addictions are at such a low grade that you can just can perpetuate them for the rest of your life. And None, nobody's the wiser and you never have to deal with it. So it's about like understanding that beneath all of those behaviors is a little nugget for you to mine that if healed or solved can improve your life. 
That's great advice and wisdom. Not really advice, but you yeah. know, good uh, knowledge and education. The, um, you had alluded to the race that, that you had done. Can you describe what that was and how you got into that? Like from starting to train, working towards that. The Ultraman race? Yeah, the Ultraman. So was that the first big race that you did? Or did you do a triathlon? Yeah, I mean, I did, I did like some local. I did like the Malibu triathlon. And then I tried to do uh, a half Ironman, the Wildflower half Ironman, which I DNF'd on like after the bike. Uh, but I'd never done an Ironman. I'd never, it, it, so the, the last race before, the, 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 the longest race before I did Ultraman was my DNF at Wildflower. So I was not an experienced endurance athlete. Like I had this swimming background, but there was no indication that I was on some kind of trajectory to be successful in endurance sports. But in the wake of that 24 mile run epiphany and thinking like, what am I capable of? And like, how can I, how can I explore this athletic side of myself in my 40s in a cool and interesting way that could be a spiritual adventure, a learning experience, a means by which I could you know, be more interconnected with myself and, and hopefully kind of figure out some of these existential questions that, I'm, that, are, that are percolating in my mind and then layer on top of that the fact that I had unfinished business as a, as a swimmer because alcoholism destroyed my swimming career when I was at Stanford and I was con- I'm convinced that I never achieved my potential as an athlete. So I felt like I still had something inside of me that, that I needed to figure out. And that got me interested in endurance sports. So I was doing a bunch of local triathlons and thought maybe I'll do an Ironman at some point, but I knew nothing about that. And I didn't realize that these Ironman races sell out like a year in advance. Um, and I didn't want to wait a year. And I came across an article in a magazine about this race called Ultraman, which was an ultra distance, double Ironman (laughs) distance triathlon. And I got to tell you, like, I didn't know that that was such a thing that existed. Like, I just thought the hardest thing you could possibly do is an Ironman. And that's that. And then I came across this race, which was twice as long. And it just blew my mind. But it was like this weird switch that got flicked. I just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was like, there's, I'm going to do that race. I just like, I'm going to, I don't know how that's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. There's no logic. Like I haven't done anything deserving of like towing the line or something like that. But like, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And the only Have you ever had that thing in your life where it's just yeah. something irrational happens, but you just know, like, it's like a past life thing. And they only allow 35 people in the race. Yeah. They limit it. Something like that. Between 30 so and 35. How did you get in? I got in. Well, I kind of applied my lawyerly <laughs> skills to this. I mean, it's different now because it's much more popular than it used to be. But, <clears throat> excuse me, I called, I found out who the race director was, this woman, Jane Bacchus, in Hawaii. So first of all, we should say, like, the, this Ultraman race is 320 miles. You circumnavigate the entire big island of Hawaii. It's a three-day stage race. The first day, You swim 6.2 miles and then you ride your bike 90 miles. The second day you ride 171 miles. And then the third day you run a double marathon, 52.4 miles. How much sleep can you have? You sleep like, well, when you're done, you can go to sleep. Like it's, it's like the tour de France. Like as soon as you you're done with the stage, you can go rest, but you got to get massage it. You got to like kind of massage the day out. You got to get food. You got to shower, all that kind of stuff. So, and then you're up pretty early, but you could get, I don't know, six to seven hours of sleep that you were getting. 
Um, but sometimes it's weird when you've exerted yourself that much, you don't sleep that well. So that's part of it as I well. Imagine. Yeah. But back to getting in. So I called the race director and I, just, I was honest with, I was just honest with her. I was like, listen, I read this article. I saw this crazy guy, David Goggins did this thing. I can't stop thinking about this race. Um, and I called way in advance of them taking applications. And I just said, you know, I'm really interested in doing this. I would love to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm making this call with, you know, complete humility. She was like, well, what have you done? And I was like, no, I've done nothing. <laughs> I, I've done nothing deserving of you letting me in this race. And she, to her credit, she should have said, look, why don't you go out and do a few things and, and call me next year? Like, it's not going to happen this year. Like, I need to make sure that, like, you know, you're at least not going to die. Uh, but she said, listen, um, got it. Uh, yes, we only accept 30, 35. I could just accept all the best athletes. That's not what I do. I try to find the right athletes. I try to find the, the I try to curate an experience for the people that I think embody the ethos of what this event is about, which is really about Ohana and Aloha, you know, the spirit of Hawaii and creating this spiritual odyssey where over the course of three days, you and your crew members are transformed by doing this very hard thing, like having this shared communal experience. Because part of the allure of the race and reading in this article was that although it's a world championship event, it was about that transformation. And it was about supporting each other along the way, not like this cutthroat competition, but more about how can we encourage all of us, all 35 competitors and their crew members to, you know, join together with this, you know, shared intention for transformation. I just thought that was so beautiful and, and just not the vernacular or the language that you see associated with a race, right? It was so fresh. Um, and she just said, why don't you, you know, why don't you just stay in touch with me? Call me in a couple of months. Let me know where you are. Like she didn't say yes. She didn't say no. She just said, check in with me in a few months. And I chose to hear you're in. Like, I just decided yeah. I'm going to start training right now, you know, and prove to her that I'm worthy of this right. and I will figure a way to get into this race. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, I hired a coach and at some point my coach had to talk to her and say, I will have him ready. And I, you know, made prom. And then he was like, you better do all these workouts because I promised right, her that him. you would be. Yeah. Like, so I felt a sense of accountability to the whole thing. Um, and, and that's how I ultimately got in. I mean, now you have to do qualifying races and that would never happen today. Was it what you thought it would be? It was more than that. It, it, it over-delivered in terms of the experience. And in my case, uh, the manner in which it just changed my life completely. Was it the difficulty of it, the camaraderie with, with your team? Like, what parts of it? I needed to do something so hard, so seemingly impossible to me to shake up how I saw myself. And it delivered that, but it did it in a very graceful, beautiful way where I felt like I was part of something that meant something more than just me and what I wanted to accomplish. Like there was a beautiful community piece there that gave me a sense of belonging. And I think, you know, kind of dusted on top of that is, is, something really mystical and powerful about Hawaii. 
you know, I can get super metaphysical here, but Hawaii has a very special energy to it. It can be very um, welcoming and it can also be menacing. And I think it can break you. And I think it demands of you um, a certain, uh, you have to acquit yourself in a certain way or it'll spit you out. And I think most people don't have that kind of relationship. People who have been to Hawaii don't have that kind of relationship with it because you're just at a resort and that's your experience of it. But I've lived there and I've spent a lot of time on these islands and I can tell you that that shit is real. And if you fuck with it, it will fuck with you right back. And so I think there was this weird kind of like relationship with the island that also played a role in that. Um, and I just had this, you know, back to that kind of like past life knowing thing, like this sense that, that I was supposed to be there. Um, there was something I was supposed to learn by virtue of doing this. And if I could learn it, there would be power in sharing what I had learned. And it, you know, it does, it, again, it's like, it's not something that was logical or fully formed in my mind, but I just, whoops, I did have that, um, I did have that sensibility. The, was there an example of something that you saw, and not to want to tangent, but I'm super curious yeah. about this, like in Hawaii that made you really understand the power of Hawaii? Oh man, there's so many things. There's so many things. Like, I think you need a humility and a reverence. Like you have to ask Madame Pele for permission. May I tread on this land? You know, like just, you can feel it. Like if you're paying attention, like you can just feel the power of it. And, and this sense that, you know, you just don't want to mess with it. I mean, one example, this was the second time I did Ultraman. We were broke. We had no money. We couldn't find anybody to help crew for me. So my wife shows up. She found two friends who were like new friends that I had never even met before who agreed to come and help. And one guy was a guy who was like studying with a, with a Native American chief. And he was like down the rabbit hole on like that um, vein of shamanism. And he was all about like, you know, talking about that wisdom from that tradition. And he, uh, what is the story exactly? There was some instance in which we were on the Queen K and I was running the double marathon and the van that they were in got a flat. And it got a flat with, uh, with a certain kind of, um, like when you, there was like a, like, a, like a bone looking thing that was wedged into the tire that looked exactly like a whale bone. And when they were trying to fix it, like a whale breached, like oh, there's like weird stuff like that. I'm like, I can't, I'm sure there's more crazy stuff, but that doesn't sound that crazy, but I can tell you in the moment that it was. Um, ask anybody, like ask, ask Mark Allen, who couldn't win was coming in second at the Kona World Championships Ironman like year after year after year, year after year after year to Dave Scott. And it wasn't until he developed like his own appreciation for shamanism and like asking permission and going down like this spiritual rabbit hole that he was able to crack the code, finally beat Dave Scott and then dominate that event for years to come. I did a podcast with him several years ago and he goes on at length about like the spirituality of Hawaii. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. 
I know I asked you this earlier, but you, you also, in, in participating in that race, had a time where your bike malfunctioned and pedal came off. You were injured, but not terribly injured, where you would, you would DNF. But you were mentally done at that point. You thought mm-hmm. the race was over for you. And then what happened is the mechanics on mechanics all came together from your team and other teams and they found a pedal and you had to like re-energize yourself and get excited about doing the race again. And I just wanted to dive in your mindset at that point of what you were feeling and how you got yourself going. Cause I think a lot of us get into a place or a rut and you just don't want to go. Mm-hmm. Or you know, I even think of something as small as like, you think you're done with an exercise routine and someone's like one more lap, you know, yeah. and, and that's at the smallest level. Yeah, exactly. But it throws you off mentally and you get frustrated. And how did you get through that? Uh, very inelegantly, I would say. Yeah, just to catch people up who people don't, who don't know the story, I was, I was in the middle of this Ultraman race in 2009. I had won the first day stage and we were 30 miles into the second day and I wiped out of my bike and I went down hard on my knee and my shoulder. But most importantly, I broke my pedal and thought, like, this race is done. Like, I've got 150 more miles on the bike today. I'm not going to do that with one leg. Like, you know, let's be honest about, you know, what I'm willing to do and not do. Uh, and, and I had to kind of pedal on one leg to catch up to my crew, which was about a mile away from where I crashed. And during that one-mile experience of just being with myself, I had completely checked out of the fact that I was in a competition. Like moments before I was on a razor's edge, here's what I'm doing, we're going for three days, this is what it's gonna be, and then crash, moment later, like I'm done, like I'm out, I'm gonna sleep in a hotel tonight, I'm going to go to the beach with my kids tomorrow, like I, I don't have to do this shit anymore, like I can bow out, and nobody's going to, like, judge me or think that I was weak. Like, this is kind of awesome. You know, like, don't tell anyone. Uh, and as that's going through my mind and then, you know, re- reconnecting with, with, with my crew where there were a bunch of crews waiting for their athletes to coming through, a crew member for, an, for a competitor, a competing athlete, um, asked me, like, what kind of pedal I needed, to which I replied, why are you asking me that question? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he disappeared and returned with the exact model of pedal that I needed to fit, fit my cleat in a box, like brand new. I was like, how is that even possible? And he this grabbed my bike. Yeah, it's like, this is Hawaii, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, dude, you are not done. You're not here to win the race. I, I got another challenge involved for you. Let's see how this one goes for you. Exactly. Uh, he gets the pedal on the bike hands me the bike. I was like, you don't understand. I'm done. He goes, get on the fucking bike. Your race is not over. Look, think about like every, everybody who sacrificed, your wife, all your kids, everybody who sacrificed for you to be here, you are not finished. Get on that bike and get it done. And he was a lot bigger than me and very intimidating. So I sheepishly got on the bike and started pedaling and just thought, well, this is the worst thing ever. It was raining. I was exhausted. But most importantly, and to your point, I had mentally checked out completely mentally checked out. I was no longer in a race. I was in a situation of trying to survive. How am I going to get through this next 150 miles? My knee is swollen. You know, my shoulder's bleeding. I just don't want to be here at all. And 
the process of going from being on that competitive razor's edge to checking out and then trying to get back into it, I don't know that I have any great answers as to how to do that other than you develop a bias towards action. There's an adage that I learned early on in sobriety, which is mood follows action. Neuroscience now proves it, and it means that if you want to move your life forward, you need to get out of this mindset that we all have that will do it when we feel like it. If we wait until we feel like doing something, chances are we are not going to do that thing because we're never going to feel like doing it. Or when we kind of feel like doing it, we're going to wait until we feel more like doing it. In truth, the mental state that you aspire to inhabit, the mental state that you seek is a result of taking action first. Mood follows action. Behavior first, perceptions, feelings, and thoughts follow. Now, I was not consciously aware of this while I was on my bike in Ultraman, but I did know mood follows action because I'd been sober for a minute, and that was something that I tell myself every single day. So this sucks. I don't want to be here, but the only way out is through. The only way out is through. There is no end run out of this. And I got through that bike, and it was not pretty, and it was not fast, and I finished that Ultraman race, and ultimately... It ended up delivering the greatest gift because what God needed me to do or the universe or whatever you want to call it is not win that race. What the universe needed me to do was learn something about myself so that I could heal these wounds. And when you're winning a race, you don't learn a whole heck of a lot. But when your back is up against it and you meet unforeseen obstacles like, hey, you thought you were done, but guess what? You got to go do this. And by the way, it's raining and it's freezing out. Like whatever it is, when you're in that situation and you see your way through, that is where you meet yourself. That is where you can no longer hide from who you are, who you think you are. And you are confronted in the most profound sense with the truth of your existence. And that is what reveals character. That's exactly what I needed. That is the lesson that I needed to learn for myself. And I got that. So when I say that that race and that experience has been transformative in my life, I am not overstating that fact. It truly has. And with some reflection, I was able to take that experience and translate it into words, the meaning of it hopefully in service to other people. I love the mood follows action, and that is so key in so many areas of our life. So I'm glad you unpacked that a bit. And I think that's, that's the example in the book. I'm just like diving into your mindset of that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also was wondering of another moment when you're crossing that finish line after accomplishing the hardest thing that seemed nearly impossible you know, a couple of years before, a year before, that you were like, I'm going to enter this race. I've never even done a, an Ironman, and I'm going to do two mm-hmm. <laughs> in a place like Hawaii. So what did it feel like? What was your mindset when you crossed it and you finished it? I mean, it was, it was rather overwhelming. I mean, in, in 2009, I had my family. The first time I did it in 2008, I was just trying to finish it. 2009, I was really there to race it. In 2008, my family wasn't there, but in 2009, they were. And, and 
you know, it was very meaningful to have them there. Like my family sacrificed a lot. And I have to say in the lead up to these races, like we were having a really hard time. Like I was still technically a lawyer, but barely making enough money. It's the 2008, you know, crash. I'm not getting hired. I can barely pay the bills. We're not able to pay the mortgage. Like I'm just trying to put food on the table. And by the way, I'm like going out and riding my bike all day. Like it was insane, <laughs> dude. And trust me, like plenty of people are calling Julie, like her friends and being like, uh, not for nothing, but yeah, like, what the guy? fuck is going on over there? <laughs> yeah. Like, shouldn't he be getting a job? And Julie, to her credit, was like, he's on his spiritual mission. <laughs> like, she's like, <laughs> she was like so supportive beyond. Like she, because I would have these crises of consciousness where I was like, this is, this is ludicrous. Like, I need to go back and get a law yeah. firm job. And she's like, no. Like, the only way out, again, the only way out is through. You cannot go backwards. The answers that you seek lie ahead. And I believe in you. And I trust you. And I know that if you pull on this thread and you follow this, this thing that's inside of you that's compelling you to do this, that I believe is true, that the answers for you and the answers for us as a family will be revealed. And that is so, that is such a profound level of like trust and respect. I mean, what spouse would do that? Most would be like, go get a job, dude. Like we got kids, like what are you doing? She's like, you gotta get on your bike. You, right. need, you got an eight hour ride tomorrow. You better get to sleep. Crazy, crazy. And yet, here we are doing a podcast and I've created this thing and I get to do what I get to do today. And I promise you, none of it happens without Julie having my back in that way. Wow. So was there, cause then you kept racing after that though. So was there a point where she's like, he's on a spiritual journey, but yeah, he should yeah. probably get a job now. Like, how, well, how did that happen? I mean, I only, you know, I did it, I did it for a couple, I mean, I, you know, I'm not the guy who's going out like Dean Karnaz is and doing a zillion races. Like I did Ultraman 2008, 2009, I did Epic Five in 2010. Wait, let's start. So, let's talk yeah, about the Epic Five quick right. though. So then, then 2009, you, you complete this race, your family is there, it has to feel amazing. How do you talk to Julie and say, I'm creating another race, I'm creating mm. this one. And with my friend, and we're going to do something no one's ever done before. Yeah, I mean, that was a, definitely a family decision also, because uh, Jason had, had, had you know, expressed interest in me doing it with him. And, and for people that are listening, it's this thing where we tried to do five Ironmans on five Hawaiian Islands in five days, and no one had ever done that before. I certainly had, you know, that's a very different animal than Ultraman. Um, and I knew it was going to take a lot of training. And I was interested in doing it, but also you know, appreciative of the fact that it was going to demand a lot of my time and energy. And, you know, Julie was like, look, if this is what you think is the right thing to do, like, I trust you and we'll work it out as a family. And we, you know, developed this system where, you know, when I was training, I was training, but as soon as I came back, she's like, here's a baby, goodbye. You know, like my turn, you know, it was kind of like that. And I, I, you know, I was like, I'm not, I, I can't complain. Like, I'm like, okay, right. this is what we're doing. Right. And, we were able to do that. And I'm not saying it was easy. And again, like we were under incredible financial constraints and, you know, there were so many reasons why it just seemed like a bad idea, but you know, I ended up doing that 
Epic Five, it took a little bit longer than five days. And that was another unbelievably transformative experience that really connected me to the islands in a profound way and, and elevated, once again, my sense of, of what I was personally capable of. Do you think you'll ever move to Hawaii? No. I mean, when we were really meeting our, like, even after Finding Ultra came out, like, I got this book deal, which paid a certain amount of money, but we blew through that pretty quick. And I was just trusting that, like, part of, a big theme in Finding Ultra is, like, when your heart is true, the universe will conspire to support you, right? And I believe that to be the case. But that doesn't mean it's on your timeline or that it's going to look the way that you would like it to look. But I believe that. And that's why the day that my book came out in... May of 2012, I committed to not renewing my bar membership, that I was walking away from the law, no matter who called me, I was not going to get lured back into helping so-and-so do whatever, uh, because I trusted, I needed to cut that tie, and I trusted my heart is true. I know my heart is true. The universe will conspire to support me, Joe. It's going to happen. That phone is going to ring. Phone doesn't ring. Phone doesn't ring. Phone doesn't ring. Fuck hell are we going to do? Like, I wrote this book. I made all these statements. I talked about transforming your life. I'm like, we got no money. Like, what is happening? It really questioned. I just thought, like, Rich, you're so full of shit. You're such a, you're so, like, all this stuff you talked about in the book and, like, look, like, what, like, it's not happening. What are we going to do? And I was on the precipice once again of, like, reactivating my bar and like trying to find a job or just doing anything like I got to make some money. Um, and I got a call from this friend who owns a property on the North shore of Kauai called common ground. He'd made a bunch of money with Mark Cuban. He was part of broadcast.com way back in the day. He wanted help developing this property as a communal space. And for, and he had read finding ultra and we had met one other time he was like, hey, I, you know, why don't you and your family like, come out to Kauai and help me figure this out? Now, I have no experience. Like, why are you calling me? Like, I, this, I don't understand. You know, like, why do you think I'm the person who's supposed to help you with this? But this guy was tossing me a lifeline, and I needed a lifeline. And within a week, my family had boarded a plane and we were living in yurts on the North Shore of Hawaii on this organic farm. It was the craziest thing. And we ended up living there for three months. And that's where I started the podcast on the North Shore of Kauai. But I started it because I was starting to get island fever. I was like, I wrote this book and I've done all this stuff to try to like, you know, figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And now I'm on a essentially a deserted island (laughs) and like a feeling very disconnected from humanity and and, and a means by which I could move my life forward. And, I, and I'm like, what am I going to do next? I got to do something. And that's, that was the tension that, that produced the podcast. But your question being, could you ever live in Hawaii? Like I lived on Kauai for three months and, and I realized that, that, no, I probably couldn't live in Hawaii. Like well, I, I need human stimuli. I need, I need I, I'm somebody who, yeah. who thrives off of um, being where the energy is which is probably why I live in Los Angeles and why I love New York City so much. Well, I'm glad I asked the question because I didn't know the podcast was created in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Created it in a warehouse. The first episode was in a warehouse on the North Shore of Hawaii. Okay. Yeah. Exactly where Gabby Reese would teach this fitness class every morning back in the day in November of 2012. But hot tip. 
pro tip for all the aspiring podcasts out there, podcasters out there, do not do a podcast in a giant warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the acoustics are not. We're ideal. kind of doing that yeah. here. Yeah. Actually, so we are a little bit. Okay. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> echoey. That, that's probably why. Yeah. Um, that is, uh, that's an incredible story. So what, what I want to just make sure people understand is like the series of or how long it took to kind of build this podcast. So you're creating 2012. There's not really, there's definitely not like a Spotify out there. iTunes was like the only home to be able to Spotify. Much, yeah. There's no iPhone. <laughs> yeah, there's like nothing. So there's nowhere to like publish this, right? So there's one place you're creating a podcast. wasn't a popular thing. We already touched on there. There's a few people doing it. What was it? was that iteration like over time and like how how did you stay consistent without analytics knowing if anyone's even listening to this mm. you don't have the instant gratification on social media as much back then walk yeah walk i mean that. a couple things i mean first of all i love doing it and it was personally very gratifying so that made it easier to just make it about process rather than results or destinations because at the time there was no money to be made anyway. Like if you were getting into this because you thought you were, there was a, like a pot of gold at the end, like you were a lunatic, like that, that didn't make any sense at all. So I was doing it for the joy of doing it. And I think that's a big reason why it's become successful because that is a thing of like the heart, my heart was true. And, and it was enriching my life personally. With, like, I, like although I wasn't being financially remunerated, I was being remunerated in so many other ways. And every encounter that I had would bring a new person into my life, like as a friend, as somebody who would become a mentor or somebody that I could call on for this and that. And I was getting enough feedback from the few people that were listening to appreciate that other people were getting something out of it. And, and you know, at the time, because there, were, there, there was so little competition, really, and so few people doing anything interesting in the health specific space the show even though it wasn't being listened to very much was still like you know number two in health or something like that from like day one even because there just wasn't anybody else so it so we were able to like whoops grab a little real estate and like establish ourselves, um and that was also very encouraging even though like it's an externality um and 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 kind of trivial but uh there was enough positive reinforcement and feedback in my personal life and externally to keep, to keep it going. But the truth is like, I never thought that it would be something that would like pay any bills or support my family. And that wasn't why I was doing it. How were you supporting your family over that period of like 2012 <laughs> barely, to beyond? Barely. So yeah, after living in Hawaii, we went back and it was really just, I mean, we didn't pay our mortgage for a long time. It's shocking that, we, that our house was not repossessed. Shocking. Like, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. Um, it was really cobbling together just, like, you know, somebody would pay me to go give a talk somewhere. And it was a lot of waiting around for the phone to ring. Um, what else did we do? I mean, I wasn't making any royalties on books. I wasn't able to, you know, it was, like, really lean for a long time, like making pennies count all the way. And there were times where we just couldn't, it was, it was very, 
I don't want to belabor this, but like, you know, it was emasculating and it was embarrassing as a head of household. Like, I'm supposed to have this figured out. And like, by the way, like, I'm the one who went to Stanford and Cornell Law and like, I can't fucking, you know, pay the electric bill. Like, our trash bins got taken away because I didn't have $80 to pay the sanitation service. And they took our bins away, which meant we had to put our garbage in the back of this beat up minivan that we had and like drive until we found like a bin, you know, like behind the supermarket or whatever to dump it. It was terrible. And that went on for longer than, you know, I really care to admit. It went on for a long time. So now when I reflect back, like I'm just, like I'm baffled. Like I was telling you, we're, we're, you know, we're doing a little bit of a remodel on our house and I just put a new roof on it and we resurface it. And it's just like, I can't believe that I'm able to provide for my family in a way that I honestly didn't think, I just didn't think I would ever, I, because, because I was so financially unsuccessful for so long, I started to believe that like I just didn't deserve it or I wasn't capable or I just lacked something that would allow me to ever figure out that piece. And was it the, the podcast and the audience growth and the, be able to capture sponsors and, yeah, it's, it's consistency. Books. It's yeah. back to the thing. You're like, how did you, you know, it's like consistency, consistency, consistency. But I mean, like did the phones, because you were always, it seems like you were consistent. So but like not what, giving up. Right. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, and belief. Like, I'm just going to keep doing this. Like, this is the, okay, what can I control? I can control, like, uh, how much I ride my bike today. Yeah. I can control whether I'm putting content out in the world. I can't control whether the phone's going to ring. So let me just focus on controlling the control. Creating your own luck. And being okay with it. And because this had been going on for so long, like I had developed some peace about it. There's an old cartoon, like an old Popeye cartoon, um, where, remember Sweet Pea? You know, the little baby in Popeye? Sweet Pea like crawls onto a construction site and crawls up onto an I-beam and then a crane picks up the I-beam and Sweet Pea's crawling around it. And right when Sweet Pea gets to the very end of the I-beam, it like swings around and connects with another one. And, he, and, and the baby just crawls it. And this happens like 20 times. And I swear to God, this is my life. Like right when I think I'm just going to get decimated and fall to my death, like that phone does ring. And it doesn't ring in the way that I would like it to, but it rings in a way that makes sure that I'm taken care of. It's like this crazy faith-based approach to life. And it's never failed me. And that doesn't mean it hasn't been hard. Like... It's been fucking brutal, like this warrior path that has taught me so much about who I am and brought me to my knees and my wife's knees in so many ways, in ways that would split up most marriages. But we found a way to allow it to make us stronger. And uh, I don't know, man. I, I, I think consistency, like trying to make sure that your heart is true, like pursuing that thing that is meaningful to you, and, and, and having that self-belief. Like, if I was to do it again, I don't know that I would do it again. I would have gotten a job so I could be responsible. I'm not advocating that anybody do what I did. Trust me, you know? Like, I don't think that I did it correctly. Yeah, well, we were, we were kind of talking about this earlier when I was talking about entrepreneurship and building businesses. And you go back and you look at all the pain. And mm-hmm. certainly, like, you can see the success in certain areas and see the outcomes. But to get there, it's like surgery. Yeah. You know, and like I go back to like when I had back surgery and I'm like, I don't know if I do that again or heart surgery when I had it. I don't know if I would do that again. I would. But just thinking about that process is so daunting 
but you did it and you did it over time. And that's the message that I want to get across. So thank you for sharing that is that things take a long time, but then all of a sudden they seem like they happen fast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's truly the case. And I said it earlier when I was giving my talk, like we tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and wildly underestimate what we can achieve in a decade. And I think it's a big reason why so many people uh, just tap out on their New Year's resolutions like two or three months in because we're not wired to like look at things from that kind of long-term view. And in my case, like, like these, these, these accomplishments, like every, it's like they, they all come in 10-year periods. Like I'm, I'm like at nine years on podcasting and I feel like I'm just now figuring it out. Like, you know, everything that I've done can only be measured in decades. I was 10 years sober before I had that, almost 10 years sober, I was nine years sober when I had the staircase thing. Like there were still so many things, like slowbriety. They say slowbriety, sobriety takes a long time. Everything good takes a long time. So I think the message is, you know, release your attachment to some kind of calendar timeline about accomplishing the things that you want to accomplish and fall in love with the process. Like the podcast that I do is successful because I love the process of doing it. And the more you're about the process and the journey, such that you're not thinking about where it's, you know, the destination or some goal or the competition or anything like that, the better position you are in to actually succeed at the thing that you're trying to do. Amazing. And now the podcast obviously is top of the charts in every category. I know we were talking earlier, there's a hundred over 120 million downloads of the ritual podcast, which is incredible. You've had 622 or so episodes. Mm-hmm. I don't claim to get the math right exactly. Right. I'm sure yeah. you know. But a lot of episodes, is there something, it'd be so tough even thinking about my 35 episodes on something that just sticks out to me. But is there something that was so memorable to you that you keep going back to? Because you've had amazing people on. Mm-hmm. What was there like maybe something way early on or something as recent that you're like, wow, this is why I do this or something? Well, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to resist the urge to like pick amongst my babies. Yeah. But I think, you know, the, the, there's so many themes that emerge from like sort of commonalities um, amongst the guests, but I think the, the, the most important thing to kind of point out is this idea that change is possible and that it's really our prerogative and it's what we're here to do. And, and this idea that, you know, people don't change is, is lazy. I think it's false. I think it's a, it's a lie that is harmful to people that we've all kind of intuited and yet actually is not true. Like there is no stasis. None of us are on cruise control. When I was in rehab, um, another thing a counselor told to me early on was every action that you take, every decision that you make, every interaction that you have with another human being, like every little tiny thing you do is either moving you towards a drink or away from a drink. And it just belies this idea of us being static creatures. Like everything is in flux all the time. Every action, every thought, every decision, every interaction is either moving you towards the person of your dreams or away from it. Are you progressing? Are you regressing? We're all changing all the time, whether we want to think we are or not. 
So what does that change look like? And how can you be in better control of that process so you're changing in the way that you want to be changing? And there are just countless examples of people who have been on my show and my, my own life included in this who have changed their lives wholesale and in ways that are so dramatic and astounding that it's mind-blowing. And I think it's important to understand that, look, you know, just because you want to be LeBron James doesn't mean you're going to be LeBron James. Like, I'm not saying like, oh, the life of your dreams is just a matter of like you deciding to make it happen. What I am saying is that all of us are sitting atop mountains of untapped potential. Like, even if you think you're operating at the highest level, I guarantee you there is more there that you're unaware of. And this has been my constant discovery for better or worse, but it's frustrating. It's like, I got to look at that now. Like, the road just keeps getting narrower. Well, that thing that I've been doing forever, I guess I can't do that anymore. And I think of it as a sacrifice or some kind of martyrdom thing, but then my life gets better when I let go of that thing or I confront that behavior that I really don't want to look at. Every person on my podcast has not become successful by a life hack or some kind of shortcut. They have been doing their thing for a very long time. It only looks like it came out of the gate. And when you understand that change is your prerogative and that it is available to you through a change in mindset, through a manner in which, a lens through which you see the world, this bias to action that we were talking about before, developing a curiosity around people and your environment, that a better life awaits you. Regardless of the circumstances that you find yourself in, a better life awaits you and it is available to you. I want to leave it at that because I could talk to you forever. Um, but I think that is, that is so true and so remarkable. And, and I know you're a, you're a very uh, humble person, Rich. Um, but I can tell you, you've been an inspiration to me. And I know a lot of the people that are listening to this, you're going to motivate them to at least take that first step. And that's all we can expect. And hopefully they keep going and move toward that goal and know it's not linear. It is, there's no perfect line. Definitely of not linear. <laughs> Definitely not linear. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me today, Joe. And it's been a pleasure to hang out with you and get to know a little bit more about your world. And uh, I don't take for, I don't take being here for granted. And I'm very grateful to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for tuning in if you're still there. And Rich Roll, you're the man. I really appreciate the time that you spent with us this weekend, with me, my family, my community, my company, and just everyone that you touched. It meant the world to me in this conversation, I thought, was just the icing on the cake. So thank you again. I got so much out of the conversation, but a few key facts that I know to be true are change takes time. I was a lost high school kid, really in my college is lost as well, and it wasn't until my early 20s that I embarked on a path that was slow but gradual, and it got me to a better place, and I made the best of that place. And it took a decade. I think Rich is right on when he says change. He can be measured in decades. And I look from where I was from 20 to 30 and 30 to 40. And I'd ask you to reflect on the same thing. And just know that nothing happens overnight. 
The second thing that I really have been thinking about is mood follows action. So much so that I called this podcast just that. It's so true in the event that I created or we created this last weekend called Go was just about that. You start off the day with a run, get the body moving, and then you sit down and listen to some inspiration. Get the body moving again, listen to some inspiration. Mood follows action. We start with action. And I think in your life, you really need to examine and I need to always examine. If I don't want to do something, start doing it. And that is going to dictate the mood versus talking about it which won't. I know this was a long episode, so I'm going to let you run. Until next week, remember, you, me, we are not almost there.